Hello and welcome to The Scan. We're excited to bring you this episode from the George Institute for Global Health. This episode features a discussion with Dr. Ophira Ginsberg and Dr. Karina Hokan about the Lancet Commission on Women and Cancer, currently underway. Dr. Ophira Ginsberg is a medical oncologist and global women's health researcher with nearly 20 years of experience in global cancer prevention and control. Formerly based at the University of Toronto, Canada, she was a medical officer at the World Health Organization headquarters in Geneva, Switzerland, and has served as an ad hoc consultant to several UN agencies. Recently, Dr. Ophira commenced a new role at the USA National Cancer Institute Center of Global Health as a Senior Scientific Officer, Senior Advisor of Clinical Research. We spoke to Dr. Ophira following London Cancer Week while she was a Senior Visiting Scientist at the International Agency for Research on Cancer in Lyon, France, a specialized agency of the World Health Organization. Dr. Karina Hukam is a postdoctoral research associate in the Global Women's Health Program at the George Institute for Global Health and Imperial College, London. Hi, Afira. It's so nice to meet you. Um, my name is Karina. I'm a, a postdoctoral research associate at the George Institute in the UK office. I work for the Global Women's Health Program and I have an interest in sex and gender differences in chronic kidney disease. Really excited to talk to you about the Lancet Commission on um, Women and Cancer today. In the commission, you've been really careful to emphasize the and in women and cancer. Can you tell us why that is so important and how does it differ from how we've previously thought about cancer in women? Thanks so much. First, it's really my pleasure to be here and it's lovely to meet you. I think that's a great question to start with. The Lancet Commission on Women and Cancer, and the end being key, is meant to be a broad look at the intersection between gender, power, and cancer. So the end is meant almost as a reminder to to me, uh, in a way, that uh, where we come from is partly from the Lancet series called Health, Equity, and Women's Cancers that came out in 2016, which I led with like 40 authors from 18 countries, where we really focused mostly on biomedical aspects, including access to health services and equity, but mostly on the biomedical approach to these two cancers, breast and cervical cancer. Whereas the other big influence on the commission was a prior commission that came out around that time, led by Professor Anna Langer called Women and Health. And in that commission, she and her colleagues emphasized that women's interaction with health went far beyond the health of women or women's health issues, which might be a bit reductionist in some people's minds down to just reproductive factors, for example. And they expanded their look and their investigation onto women's role as healthcare recipients of healthcare and as providers of healthcare, including the informal healthcare workforce. So in our commission, we're taking that much broader look at how women interact with, let's say, the cancer health system. Fascinating. You mentioned the Health Equity and and Cancer Lancer Commission. And did you mention, was it breast and cervical cancer that that commission focused on? 
Yes, the series actually, it was a series, not a commission. So series really means it was um, three articles that were strung together with um, a common theme, the theme being breast and cervical cancer that were two very specific cancers only that were mm -hmm. chosen for strategic reasons, not least of which is because breast is the number one cancer cause of cancer-related death in most countries. And cervical still is uh, sadly a uh, common risk of cancer in in the Lancet Commission, which is entirely original research, really, and some synthesis of existing evidence, we are looking at all cancers, especially, for example, lung and colorectal cancer that are sometimes thought of as being cancer that only impact men. You mentioned that many of the leading cancers are women-specific, or at the very least women-dominant, things like breast, cervical, and ovarian. I guess, is that still true? And are there particular reasons why that's still the case in cancer? If you're asking about why those cancers are still predominant, um, yeah. that's, that's an interesting discussion of its own. But the, the short version is that cancer, of course, is more than 100 diseases. And we, we understand some of the common risk factors. So why breast cancer is as uh, prominent as it is, and why is it increasing so much and really predominantly in countries going through massive economic transition is a story that is partly understood. We know that some of the drivers of breast cancer risk besides aging um, include exposure to alcohol. That's something that has been underreported until recently. And my colleagues at IARC, the International Agency for Research on Cancer, which is where I am now um, as a senior visiting scientist, they've been focusing their attention on alcohol as an underreported risk factor, but also overweight and obesity that drives the risk of postmenopausal breast cancer. And moreover, what's really interesting with breast cancer epidemiology is that the reproductive factors, some of which we can't modify ourselves, how old we are when we first, when a girl first gets her menstrual cycle, uh, what's called menarche, as I'm sure you know, woman's health expert, um, how many children a woman has and what age they start having children. These all impact breast cancer risk, as does breastfeeding. The less breastfeeding and women who've never breastfed, these are risk factors for breast cancer. And so we see this change, um, these habits and practices and exposures change over time in countries that are going through big transitions. In the case of cervical cancer, of course, we know the cause. It's HPV, it's human papillomavirus. Sexual practices changing means that in some cases that is increasing in some countries where they should have, they might've been predicted to have declining incidence and mortality had they been able to institute into their health system effective cancer screening programs. So where that hasn't happened, we sometimes see breast and cervical cancer both going up. For example, in um, some countries of the former Soviet Republic, Central Asia, et cetera. But anyway, there's much more I could say on that, but I don't want to detract from the rest of our conversation. It sounds like we could talk all day about cancers itself. Can you tell us what an intersectional view is, you mentioned that in your first answer, and why it's so important when addressing these global cancer inequities. In fact, I mentioned uh, the intersection of gender power and cancer with the sort of colloquial use of the word intersection. But in fact, what I, what I haven't uh, yet brought up in our conversation is that another novel aspect of our commission on women and cancer is that we are taking explicitly an intersectional feminist approach to cancer okay. altogether. And we are developing a new 
um, conceptual framework with our colleagues who are gender experts. We have an anthropologist. We, we are much more than as a commission, as a group of people working on the commission, uh, than uh, cancer you know, care providers or cancer researchers. So intersectional feminism and the intersectional feminist approach to cancer will be an effort, perhaps not a first effort, but maybe a first really comprehensive effort to envision how women's women can be marginalized and not just women, but people of gender minorities as well, trans mm -hmm. uh, persons, et cetera, can be marginalized from different perspectives, such as race, socioeconomic uh, status, et cetera. And that these uh, elements of marginalization are greater than the sum of their parts. And we have to look at people much more holistically to be able to reduce their exposures that are, you know, driven by some of those marginalization aspects, such as overweight and obesity among socioeconomic yeah. disadvantaged persons, for example, and how we can also use that kind of lens to reduce cancer health disparities regarding outcomes like cancer yeah. survival. I'm sure that really comes into it when you're talking about the interaction with the health system as well. Yes, exactly. We are not to give away too much, but yeah. we are also thinking about, you know, how can we look at health systems from a feminist perspective? And I, I imagine you've done some of that in your work, Karina, you know, in women's health more broadly, there's been a lot of work done in this area that we should learn from. We as the quote unquote global oncology community, mm -hmm. um, we don't want to reinvent the wheel. And so we're really taking a deep dive into the existing literature from other health domains as well. Sounds brilliant that you have you know, people from so many different disciplines you know, with you know, experts in gender and the like all involved. That sounds amazing. So now we're going to move on to the commission itself. Could you tell me about the process for the commission? So um, what's involved, who's involved and over what time frame? So the commission began as um, a conversation with myself and the editor of The Lancet, Richard Horton, a couple of years ago, actually. We just had our last London Global Cancer Week. Two years ago was the last time before the pandemic where we were all in person for various events. And we uh, spoke about the follow-up from the Lancet series, Health, Equity, and Women's Cancers, and what's happened since then. And we we're kind of both remarking on some of the progress, the excitement around the elimination of cervical cancer, the strategy that now it's one year old as of last week, efforts to galvanize attention and expertise towards some pragmatic solutions to close the cancer divide for women with breast cancer. There's the Global Breast Cancer Initiative that had just begun to, to take shape uh, two years ago. I think maybe it hadn't really started yet, but we, we started a conversation that led to um, my drafting a concept note that then was approved by the board, the editorial, the editors. And we set about to find a very dynamic group of individuals uh, among my own network and the network of others in my network to bring together what's now 20 people from across the globe, from expert areas of expertise, including cancer epidemiology, screening, clinical care, radiation oncology, surgical, medical oncology, and also, as I mentioned earlier, gender expert, uh, scholar, uh, an anthropologist, other social scientists who work in health systems research, and a couple of policymakers, including uh, two representatives who are now in or previously were in WHO regional or country offices. So 
lots of people trying to put towards this effort, which will result in a major publication in The Lancet, 25 to 30,000 words, on, we hope, International Women's Day, March 8th, 2023. Okay. So that's our main output. But along the way, there's a lot of other works that we are um, including in our remit. And we hope the commission itself will be about a five-year enterprise, as they generally are, with plenty of opportunity for collaborations with other folks, other agencies, institutes, and pragmatic outputs such as scholarship opportunities and mentorship opportunities and dissemination events. That's just a handful of things we hope to come from the commission as a whole. So it sounds like 2022 is going to be a busy year. Absolutely. So what are you hoping to come out of the Lancet Commission in terms of cancer outcomes around the world? Great question. In fact, the commission is not going to result only in a big report that I must admit is long. Um, These commission reports usually have a good, solid executive summary and infographics, and we're hoping those are tractionable, if that's a word. But really, it's the set of recommendations for policymakers that are the most important piece to the report. And how is that going to impact? How are we going to track the impact of our recommendations in a real way is that we will plan for a policy analysis sometime after the commission's report is published. And we will hold regional launch events where we can engage with stakeholders from, again, a wide range of areas of expertise that should include policymakers as well. And depending on our findings, we hope that some of our recommendations or our findings may be incorporated into policy at country level, I mean, that's the ideal situation. Sometimes commissions even result in a World Health Assembly resolution. I wouldn't claim that we're, we're definitely going to be able to do that, but we want to achieve some real world impact yeah. or we wouldn't be doing it because otherwise it's a labor of love. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So when the policies that you've talked about, would those be at multiple levels, kind of country, regional, global, or are you really focusing on the country level? Oh, it could be any of those. For example, there has not been, in, in our view, enough attention paid to capturing and supporting women as unpaid, generally, caregivers, informal caregivers for people with cancer. This is something that we're looking into now. We also recognize that national cancer plans don't necessarily look at Um, any aspects of marginalization, some of them do. We would hope that depending on our findings, there may be opportunities to inform policymaking that could be global, regional, or country level, or all of those three. I'm going to point one out that might be jumping the gun a bit here. We are interested in the role of breastfeeding. The duration of breastfeeding actually is directly or is associated quite clearly and strongly in multiple studies from all over the world. Breastfeeding, the longer the breastfeeding, the lower the risk of breast cancer to a point. So how do countries and regions and what is global policy that can help facilitate the implementation of policies at country level on breastfeeding, on opportunities for Mm, women to breastfeed in in public spaces and to take time for this and also to counter the influence of commercial actors that have been really uh, unscrupulous to say the least in trying to discourage women from breastfeeding, which of course is hugely important for children and for women in, in multiple ways that I'm sure you know more about than I do as a women's health expert. 
Wow. When talking about breastfeeding, the cancer risk really doesn't come into it, does it in the public discourse. Exactly. And a lot of people aren't aware that, that no. um, breastfeeding is a major risk reducer for, for breast cancer. Mm-hmm. There is some WHO documentation now that does include it, but it hasn't really been, I, I would say, taken up or um, appreciated by the public at large in any country. Yeah, I guess that's the most important um, audience for that information, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Women are more likely to breastfeed if they know about breast cancer yeah. and they're interested in reducing their risk by a method that is healthy in so many other ways. You mentioned earlier the role of women as informal caregivers. I guess that comes into in terms of the work that you're doing. Are you interested in terms of the women having cancer themselves, but then also providing informal care to partners or children um, or elderly relatives who have cancer? Is that come into it? Yes, absolutely. That's what I was referring to. Mm-hmm. And this is back to one of our main inspirations and influences is uh, Professor Anna Langer and her team with their Women and Health Commission that was published in 2015, where they looked at that. So yes, much like they did, we wish to also look at women as recipients of healthcare and all of the dynamics around power and advantage and disadvantage that some women, by the way, some individuals on our commission, plus our advisors, and we're developing also a patient advisory board, are sharing their own stories of how they feel they were very much um, not treated as, as, as well as they might have in the health system. Are you able to share any takeouts yet? We are not able to share any findings yet, no. It's early days. We're still narrowing down some of our research questions while others are actively in process and we are looking at our findings together within the commission itself and then we will start uh, writing the report uh, in the next few months and we'll be sure to let people know if we do release any information earlier such as in the form of a background paper that some commissions do when there's a big piece of work and we think it's better to publish that and then just take a bit of it and put it into the report for example. So many commissions have accompanying papers, sometimes they're called background papers that might appear in the same journal, in the Lancet Weekly Journal, or in the family of Lancet journals, or even other journals, where they have a piece of work that has become very much expanded because of the commission, but the entirety of that research is too much to fit into the report. So let's say we were to look at some epidemiological variable, and we had all these global statistics that certainly are enough to put into a a major paper of which one or two points we would want to just cite in the report of the commission. When you think of small c, what a commission is, it's really a group of people who are tasked with uh, solving a puzzle or approaching a problem and understanding it as best as they can. Not everything that they end up doing will end up in one single report. I hope that makes sense. No, no, that does make perfect sense. Um, Thank you. Well, we're really excited about the first public event that we just hosted online as part of London Global Cancer Week. This was an opportunity for the public to get a sense of what the commission's about and to meet some of the commissioners. It was done very much in talk show style format. I think I just had three minutes at the beginning with a few slides after a few words from our handling editor, Dr. Vanya Wisdom from The Lancet. And then we had Actually, our two co-chairs, Dr. Werner van der Poy, who's from Ghana, and Dr. Isabel Soriamataram, who's here originally from Indonesia. She's here at IARC as the deputy head of the branch of global cancer surveillance. 
each of them led a discussion with two of the commissioners. So it was two back-to-back conversations. And then we all came together for a Q&A. And that is now posted on YouTube. You can also look up our website where we will soon post the YouTube video for everyone. And we are very excited about the opportunity, first of all, today for myself as as one of the co-chairs to speak with you from the George Institute. I have a great respect for the Institute and the research involved. We've been fortunate to have Dr. Devaki Nambiar, who uh, has been a commissioner and now she'll be an advisor for us to have another opportunity to disseminate what we are doing. We also welcome for those uh, who might be listening who have ideas or um, they wish to know more about the commission just to reach out to us on the website. It's easy. It's www.womenandcancercommission.org. And there's a contact information there for people. That's really good to know. In terms of um, public and patient involvement, what contributions are they making to the commission? Are they helping to define and prioritize research questions or is it more providing a narrative around their experience of cancer? It's a little of both, in fact. So we have among our commissioners a number of people who've experienced cancer on our advisory board as well. And now one of our colleagues, uh, Carolyn Taylor, who many of us in global oncology have known for a long time, she uh, herself had... uh, endometrial and ovarian cancer more than 10 years ago. And she's been, as she says, very fortunate uh, to have done well. She is putting together a full-on patient advisory board now. So we've had the input informally from a number of individuals who have experienced cancer. And we certainly are looking at the literature on um, what some call survivorship. I know some don't prefer that word. And we realized that we want really broad representation from patient advocacy or other civil society organizations. So that is now in development. And we are hoping they will engage more once we um, start sharing some of the findings and consider the dissemination strategy. But I would say it's fair to say that the patient voice as it, as it were, um, has been very much part of our whole development of this commission. Which is so important, I think, has been underappreciated previously, hasn't it? Absolutely. And I'll add one more thing. We're, one other thing we're going to do that we think is fairly novel in the report is we're going to highlight individual stories. I don't want to say too much and to give too much away too quickly, but we are um, trying to find ways to really literally give voice to people who have had who have had uh, personal experience with the cancer health system in a variety of settings and despite multiple aspects of disadvantage back to the intersectional feminism yep. lens we want to also reflect on stories of resilience and we may use the website as a vehicle for that as well. we've talked about impact of cancer on women and gender minorities and the whether that's direct or indirect um, and the importance of intersectionality just generally cancer inequalities uh, around the world do you think uh, the representation of women and gender minorities in leadership positions in kind of cancer epidemiology policy care clinical care um, do you think that that needs to be considered as well Absolutely. In fact, I didn't really um, mention the four sort of working groups that we have within the commission. One is on epidemiology, another is economics, 
A third is looking at intersectional feminism per se, as it relates to cancer, that's kind of a shorthand version to say what three of them are doing. The fourth is on the cancer healthcare workforce. And that will very much include uh, individuals um, beyond physicians, certainly beyond cancer specialists and looking at women in leadership roles. Some of that work has been done and is very much building momentum from the cancer societies. It so happens that currently ASCO, the American Society of Clinical Oncology, and ESMO, the European Society of Clinical Oncology, just named two of the largest um, cancer societies, each have women in prominent leadership roles right now and have in the past and are taking on some of that work themselves through surveys and other efforts to highlight um, opportunities to make even greater improvements. And we would like to focus our attention also on the barriers and facilitators to achieving leadership positions in the oncology healthcare workforce and in research and other domains in low and middle income countries for individuals, women from low and middle income countries. Whether we're also looking at gender minorities in that space remains to be determined, so stay tuned. I um, clearly have a particular interest in um, sex and gender differences in chronic disease. There are important sex and gender differences in cancer. And we talk a lot about um, the representation of women in clinical trials or or research more generally. Is that a problem in cancer as well? Yeah, I'd say yes and no. I think the bigger issue is that underrepresented underrepresented populations, um, so women, African-American women are less likely to be involved in certain types of trials, et cetera. Now, cancer clinical trials, of course, are at least until recently with the advent of a whole different approach um, have been cancer specific. So in the case of breast cancer, most of the participants of course would be women, but the women tended to be white women or women of European ancestry. And that is an important problem that must be addressed. And the major cancer research uh, bodies and societies are really trying to make major improvements in that regard. When you look at sex, biological sex differences, yes, of course, there are lots of important aspects to cancer risk. For example, I can say that the work of our PhD candidate here at IARC, say Dr. Harriet Rumgay, whose um, work I alluded to earlier, showed that even moderate drinking poses a substantially greater risk of cancer attributable to alcohol, right? More cancer burden attributed to moderate drinking in women versus men. So about a third, something like 30 to 33%, I can't remember exactly, of the 170,000 cancers in 2020 in women that were caused by attributable to alcohol, a third of those were due to moderate drinking. Whereas the men who arguably did have a much higher number of uh, cases of cancer Mm -hmm. due to alcohol, only 8% were caused by moderate drinking. The majority was by the much heavier drinking. So what's going on there? What is that biological difference about alcohol metabolism or the way the metabolites of alcohol um, are directly or indirectly influencing cancer risk? And that's a number of cancers, more cancers than we used to think of that -hmm. are related to alcohol, breast being one of them. That's just one example. And there are others. Women tend to have more right-sided tumors when we're looking at colon cancer, for example, which is biologically different, 
screening for like a sigmoidoscopy for, for those of you medical people out there doing a sigmoidoscopy would miss more cancers in women than in men. Okay. Right. So there, there are many such differences that are just now coming to light. Yes. Yeah. It's difficult to convey that message when there is, you, you say for example, moderate drinking or, or maybe cancer in general, but you know, the risk is higher in men um, and we're not disputing that, but it's about the inequalities that exist despite a female advantage. And I think that that's often a, a very difficult message to convey, you know, that greater yes. relative mm -hmm. risk in moderate women drinkers versus uh, non-drinkers. Um, right. And in the case of this message or this line of work, we are not, there's no value in saying women have it harder or da, da, da. Exactly, it's, exactly. it's bad for everyone. Alcohol is a risk factor for cancer, period. Looking at women, we see the following. And yeah. how does that relate to policy and recommendations for policymakers? Well, there's targeted marketing for mm. women, just like there was for tobacco that yeah. increased, you know, there's a big difference in the timing in historically of when women's tobacco um, consumption rates massively increased in uh, Western countries anyway, which, which went along with the identification of women's empowerment and also beauty and thinness, which was for good or bad identified as part of beauty, women's empowerment going along with tobacco. We're seeing that now with the alcohol industry. There's been a lot of mm -hmm. uh, lenses being shone on that now. Yeah. Thank you so much for um, talking me through the commission. I've learned a lot today. Um, what are the next steps um, that you'll be taking? Well, thanks. It's, it's my pleasure to be here to talk about the commission. Um, the next steps are to continue doing the research. And uh, as I mentioned, we have an upcoming meeting of just commissioners, a closed meeting to review where we are at with progress. And we're going to start putting together the report. A first draft has to be submitted to the Lancet sometime this coming summer, almost a full year before in fact, less than a year before the publication is expected. We're also developing our partnerships and our strategic initiatives with our partners to plan our dissemination events. So do stay tuned. We want everybody to look at the website. And um, yeah, we look forward to ongoing engagement also with the George Institute. Um, it's amazing that, you're, that you've planned the um, evaluation of the policies that will hopefully come out of the commission. That sounds like such an important aspect. I'll just add... We certainly hope so. We actually don't have a whole lot of funding. So if any, anybody is listening to this who's interested in supporting the work, um, including the work that follows with evaluations, et cetera, we'd be mm. very happy to hear from you. Sure. Um, Afira, thank you so much for your time today and best of luck. Thanks so much, Karina. And thanks to the George Institute. Make sure you subscribe to The Scan so you don't miss an episode. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We can't wait to bring you all the latest news and research in global health.